0: Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler.
1: Good morning. Well, today's topic might be considered a dicey one to some about locating bank accounts and other assets. My guest on this subject is Nicholas Smith. Nick is an expert witness in several disciplines. However, on this subject, his skills and techniques were challenged in a California Superior Court recently, and his side prevailed, which is why we want to talk about this, this important subject. Good morning, Nick.
2: Good morning, Francie.
1: Boy, thanks for, for being on. We were just saying, uh, you know, Nick, I have... Uh, communicated you with you electronically for a number of years, and yesterday was actually the first time we ever spoke in person. I think it's amazing.
2: I know it, it is. It, since the inter- when the internet came of age, we were trading emails, and I.
1: <laughs> right. And, so and is, oh. I'm surprised evolution hasn't made us lose our voices. Really. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, yeah. uh, so we're going to talk about asset searches, yeah. but right. how did? Nick, how did you start getting into doing this
2: uh, judgment collection kind of business? Um, well, actually, when I first um, started in the, in the TI business, when I was apprenticing to um, the, the uh, qualified manager that would uh, sign up on my hours, uh, it was in San Jose, and he uh, shared office space with a group of attorneys, and one of them was an attorney for Sears Collection Central in Mountain View. And he had a contract for, um, you know, enforcing, uh, suing and enforcing judgments against the consumers. And since all of that's just kind of rote filling out forms, he hired us to do that. So we got really used, we got very familiar with what, you know, what kind of complaints you file, whether it's an open book or account stated or conversion. Um, So that was, and I was only 24 at the time. So I got Mm. a lot of experience in how you execute on, um, Bank accounts. So it was a great education.
1: Interesting. And then, um, then you just took it from there. How did you? How did you get from
2: there to here? (laughs) Well, this is you know thirty two years later. So,
1: (laughs) briefly.
2: (laughs) Briefly. Oh god. Um, In terms of collecting assets. um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, what we, what I discovered over time. I've done. uh, We've done lots of work with major law firms. Many of them are excellent litigators, but when it comes to collecting the money, many are at, at just adrift. I don't, know yeah. if there's a, I don't know if there's continuing education on how you execute on bank accounts, but attorneys come to us for that reason. So um, I noticed that there was kind of this lack, so we began focusing on um, developing our skills and you know, what kind of assets can you find um, and how do you do it. And,
1: you know, there's a lot of need for this. What advice would you have for somebody who would be interested in in pursuing this, this discipline?
2: Um, well, if you're pursuing it as an adjunct to an investigative business that you already have, um, I would say there's lots of things that you can do. I wouldn't uh, enter it um, uh, from a standpoint of, like, if you uh, want to become a judgment enforcement, whatever that is, specialist, mm-hmm. um, I know there's a figure that's frequently thrown around, and I listened to Joe Dickerson, and he used the same figure, that 80% of all judgments go uncollected. Mm-hmm. That's true. But, but so the big, bigger question is, so what? Many of those judgments that go uncollected represent monies that will never be there, never were there in the first place, so it's kind of a pointless number. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In my opinion. My-
3: let, and
1: let me, Let's just say who Joe Dickerson is. Previous Joe Dickerson is a private investigator, uh, actually, who uh, out of Colorado, who yeah. um, does a lot of in, this kind of work. Um, and oh, he was on a, the he's show.
2: He's a real pro. He's a pro.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's he was on this show on PIs Declassified, a number of months ago, uh, talking about a similar subject. Right. Yeah, uh, and also uh, back up a second. You mentioned qualified manager. Um, since we're in California, most people in the rest of the world do not have any idea what that is.
2: So. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. I, that's the person who has, in California, um, a certain number of hours and has taken a, a state-administered examination and got a passing score um, and has secured their own individual license. That, that person becomes a qualified manager
1: right and then and, and then and that gives own, and
2: have their own agency and can employ other people to work for them and things like that
1: correct okay great i just wanted to clear that up because people might be wondering yeah. what
2: that means i forgot i forgot <laughs> even though we know
1: okay yeah. so all right so so when you when you get a case are you, typically do you do you work on the case from the beginning or do you just get it post judgment when they want it to uh, try to collect well, the assets
2: we get the, the whole gamut um, from uh, attorneys calling us up. that They've already gotten a judgment. Maybe the judgment's very old, and they're just simply going, you know, giving it a, a last check to see if there's something there. Sometimes it's um, in anticipation of litigation, which is a permissible purpose, and that's, um, there's legislation that, that governs this. That's the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. Mm-hmm. And you can you you want to say that what that is actually? Yes, it's a it's a it's a federal uh, law that controls um, how financial institutions exchange information with each other about consumers, mm-hmm. and it details certain rights that the consumer has not to participate in that information exchange.
3: Okay,
1: all right. And that's just one of the, um, uh, there's lots of federal laws, but California also has its own laws that mirror the federal laws and sometimes are more restrictive.
2: Well, I've heard that, but I've read it. It's the uh, California Financial Information Privacy Act. And I've heard people say that uh, it's more restrictive than GLPA, but um, I don't don't see the language, um, I just don't see how it's more restrictive, I'm sorry. It's about the same in my opinion.
1: And what about the uh, Fair Credit Reporting Act? Is that, isn't that more restrictive in California than it is um,
2: federally? Oh, that just has to do, uh, the. Uh, I think the difference from the federal in terms of California has to do with uh, reporting periods of different events, like uh, judgments, things like that.
1: Okay, okay.
2: Yeah.
1: All right, so um, okay. So the California Financial Privacy California Financial Information Privacy Act. It's a mouthful.
2: Right.
1: Um, <coughs> what does that include?
2: What does that include? Mm-hmm. Um, would it include? I'm sorry. Um, well, it's. What kind, um,
1: yeah, what kinds of restrictions are there for you in this work of judgment collection?
2: Well, it really doesn't restrict us at all because in 2004. Um, SB1, uh, which was kind of an amendment, was passed. Mm-hmm. And it really um, it only dealt with uh, equal treatment uh, between information sharing between affiliates of, of financial institution and their joint marketing partners. Um, <clears throat> it protected their operational and transactional uses of customer information. Um, it actually limited the use of separate state privacy notices. So I don't see. I really don't see how it. Okay. Know, I, I may have. I may have missed something. I just don't know. Well, it's interesting.
1: Uh, interesting, Nick. I, this is not the kind of work I do, but I often hear people talk about it, and uh, and they and it's always about all the restrictions they encounter when trying to locate assets. So it's, right. this is interesting that you're you're saying that these uh, various laws really don't restrict you
2: particularly. Right. Well, if you think about it, you know, a little more, you um, know, in, in the larger scheme of things, you know, all of this stuff is financial information that allows the economy to run. Consumers to buy things. Mm-hmm. And it has to occur in an on, on an ongoing basis, this exchange of information. You can't just say, I, to a bank, I don't ever want you to tell anybody anything about what I have. Okay. You'd, you wouldn't be able to move through society unless you had big wads of cash mm-hmm. you know institutions want to make sure that you're not doing things financially that could put them at risk so they monitor things all the time that is part of the package So um... the, the only protection that you actually have under federal law under gram leach bliley is the right to opt out of that exchange of information
1: Okay, so what what
2: does that mean? It means that every year, actually when you sign up with the bank, the bank's supposed to tell you that they exchange information with certain certain people within their banking institution, affiliates, and then third-party what they call marketing partners. Well, that's a broad term. So who do they sell the information to? Well... They sell your bank information to Visa, Mastercard. I mean, it's not when I say sell; it's just an exchange of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that goes on all the time.
1: Uh, okay. So, um, well, I, and, I, and I know they report it to credit reporting agencies. So, does that mean if you opt out,
2: it wouldn't be reported to a credit reporting agency? Probably not. No. Uh, opting out of your banking bank reporting uh, under gramm leach the only affects. The bank's sharing of information. Your creditors still get to report whatever they want. Okay. It does not affect individual creditors or the credit reporting agency. You can't opt oh. out. The only way you can affect your credit report, and it actually is done fairly effectively sometimes, is to freeze it. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: And that's uh, if you think
2: there's some kind of fraud. Well, actually, um, I know some privacy experts who say go ahead and freeze it anyway, and then you'll you'll have to be contacted if you, if some um, creditor wants to extend you credit because they won't give him any information or the creditor any information unless you specifically release it. So some say that the freezing is actually a, kind of an effective instead of paying a monthly monitoring fee to like mm-hmm. uh, LifeLock or one of the commercial firms. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. So I've, I, you know, I've never done that, uh, and I'm, yeah. but I've heard of people doing, it, doing uh-huh. freezing their, uh, their credit reports. I wonder how difficult it is to unfreeze it if you
2: actually want to use it. Well, I know uh, actually uh, a privacy expert who who helps people uh, with the internet issues, and he, his is person, and he says it just takes a phone call once you okay. understand the process. Yeah. Hmm. I can't imagine it it's that so simple. <laughs> yeah, I, I said I've never done it myself, so I don't know from experience.
1: Yeah, okay. All right. And, and we might say also, uh, Nick, that the GL um, GLB, it also applies to all financial institutions, which isn't just banks. It Correct. would be department stores, anybody that handles uh, financials, information of any kind. Correct. Correct. Okay. Okay, so when... When you get a judgment, and I know you've had some, you've collected some pretty big ones, which we'll talk about later. But um, where do you start? What do you start with?
2: Um, well, generally, the first thing we do is do you know a comprehensive uh, background database dump, so to speak, looking for all uh, publicly available information that will give us clues. Like, do they own real property? Well, real property information is public. Mm-hmm. Um. You can tell a lot from that. If they own property, it's more likely that they will have cash assets. Uh, If they don't have real property, it's less likely. So that's the first step. The second would be to determine, do they have any business relationships? Um, Again, databases. Okay. Just to get a general sense of, you know, is this going to be... a one bank individual or is this person likely to have, you know, multiple accounts and multiple sure. jurisdictions? I mean, they own two homes in different states, things like that. Sure. Those are clues that we look at.
1: And we there are ways, um, proprietary databases that a private investigator has access to that it wouldn't be uh, appropriate for
2: the general public, or nor
1: could they have access.
2: Correct. They're actually not databases, The they aggregators, you know. The database, good point. Or yeah, um, uh, yeah. The, the aggregators, you do have to have. You have to have special. Um, for example, if, if certain databases or aggregators that we access, they have to inspect our offices before we were allowed to do that to make sure we actually were a real business. hmm <laughs> So yeah, they're they're fairly careful about it, and the general public doesn't have access to that. You're right.
1: Right, yeah. Okay. And so you would, uh, you would try to determine uh, where this person has addresses?
2: That's one of the first things, because they're more likely to, you know, um, well, there's a, there's a common dictum in asset, in asset searching that if you take a, uh, cir- a compass and draw a circle that's one mile in circumference around the residence mm-hmm. of the individual, You'll find their bank bank there, huh, the same with, That's interesting, yeah, I mean, a large percent of the population of course more more people are moving away from you know actually going to a bank uh, because that's it's true. not convenient, so that's less true now, I would say probably
1: okay, you know, Nick, already you can believe it's time for a commercial break, oh, we will yeah. be coming right back with Nick and more information. <laughs>
0: Listening to PI's Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to FRANCIE at PI's Now, here's Francie Kaler.
1: Nick Smith has many skills, but one set of skills involves asset research. Um, We've talked enough about laws. Just let's suffice it to say that if anybody is interested in getting into this business of uh, recovering assets or researching assets, uh, that they really need to to be up to date on all the laws surrounding it. Absolutely. Would you agree with that?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. It's. uh, I mean, the, the laws are there to protect the consumer as they should. So um, the permissible purposes, um, there really has to be a legal or beneficial interest in whatever we're doing. Uh, And 99.9 times out of 100, it's because there's actually a judgment. uh, Correct.
1: Now, do you do any pre-litigation research?
2: Is that something you do? We do lots of pre-litigation research.
1: Okay, okay. Yeah. So a lot of times... uh, Uh, Somebody may contact you, an attorney may contact you, for example, and want to know if
2: this person has assets. Actually, we do more pre-litigation asset searches uh, on business-to-business litigation Okay. when there's there's a lot at risk. And, of course, business-to-business litigation, we're not constrained by uh, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, gramp leach Blightly, it's a totally different domain.
1: Okay. All right. That's a very good point. Um, yeah. But, again, know, if you're looking into this, know your law, because if you violate it, it's typically a strict liability where you're going to be sanctioned, and you have no defense.
2: The fines start at about 2500 for the minor infractions of these, and the the Federal Trade Commission, well, now it's the, the uh, public consumer uh, agency is responsible for enforcement and they're saying they will put people in jail so I, I believe them.
1: I believe them as well.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, w- I wouldn't disagree with the government no. I don't
1: think. No. As a general rule. Yeah. Okay so um, what what kind of a client calls you
2: Nick? Well I'll give you um, an example of uh, the, the most exotic largest case uh, that we've worked on, Um, a friend of mine who's with the Federal Defender's Office in San Jose had traveled to Caracas, Venezuela in 2002 on a murder investigation and met uh, some lawyers there and got to be friendly with them. And In 2003, they called him in San Jose and said, we represent a client, multinacional de seguros, second-largest insurance company in Venezuela they've been defrauded out of seven and a half million dollars by means of a bony facsimile letter that was transmitted to their bank uh, Deutsche Bank in Germany instructing them to send seven and a half million dollars to Sri Lanka which they did Wow (laughs) Yeah, it was (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and of course the attorneys said you know we don't know what to do they had that's, to look you know, up on a,
1: <laughs> that's beyond comprehension did they not do any checking
2: well no what would what <laughs> ultimately when it unraveled there was a conspiracy there was a person in the bank who was on the payroll oh, okay. and he received a phone call from the the mastermind of this crime uh, and he was prosecuted and, and went to, went away and um, but he's a, a notorious thief in Sri Lanka. His name is Suresh Mirchandani. I hope he's listening. Um, he was uh, just a masterful thief. And the the bank, um, our client would not have been aware of the theft except they received an advice of debit from the bank. That was it.
1: Interesting. So what happened next? You. So
2: well, the they said, "You know, what can we do?" And I said, "I don't have the slightest idea. <laughs> I don't
3: have a clue. I don't have a
2: clue." So, um, and they said, "Well, uh, the money's in Sri Lanka. Would you be willing to go to Sri Lanka and see if you can find it?" <laughs> so I said, "Well, sure. You're you're paying. I'm going." <laughs> so I called some friends of mine, and I, I did. The, you know, over the years, I think I think the. Uh, You discover that one of the most effective ways that you can do investigations is through, you know, the circles of uh, people that we know. So I was able to get uh, an introduction to, I was only like two connections away, from a man who was a controller of a large company in Colombo, Sri Lanka. So he was my point person when I went there.
3: Hmm. And he
2: did a lot of legwork before he even got on the ground. Um, Interesting. So that's how I started.
1: So, so you're actually working with a, working for a Venezuelan company,
2: uh-huh.
1: following money that was transferred from Germany to Sri Lanka. Correct. Okay, I was just making sure I wanted to
2: get that. But it gets it gets stranger because, as <laughs> over the course of the investigation, some of the witnesses. This, um, the fellow that was the architect of the crime had committed multiple crimes. I, I mean, he, when I say crimes, he's not a, like he doesn 't carry a gun. He was a confidant of one of the prior presidents of Sri Lanka and conspired with that president to s- steal like 10 million dollars worth of um, money that was supposed to be for equipment from his company in Hong Kong, and the equipment never arrived um, anyway. Uh-huh. So, yeah.
1: Well, and, and during that case, uh, you went to Sri Lanka a number of times, right? As well as a number I of other... I went to
2: uh, Sri Lanka a total of 10 times from 2003 to 2007 because what happened was my clients, the, the executives of the Venezuelan Whalen Company, were terrified of the idea of having to go to Sri Lanka. Because? Neither, neither, why? Neither, Neither of them spoke English very well. Oh. They were um, they were worldly in the sense that they had traveled to Europe, but they had never traveled to Southeast Asia or any. And that just they just it was beyond them. So now
1: your so fluency. I was, I was made a fluent. special.
2: I was made a special director of the company, and I basically uh, hired the attorneys in in Colombo and prosecuted the litigation. We were able to find the we were able through investigation to find about five million dollars of the money in in a bank and we got orders from a court freezing the money. Okay. And we engaged in a long, long court battle. And eventually got so, the
1: money. So you pr- you personally prosecuted?
2: Well I was the I was the, the executive officer of the company for purposes of being the prosecuting witness.
1: Oh, okay, I see.
2: Okay. The Sri Lanka has a very interesting legal system. It's a combination of uh, English law for commercial and criminal transactions, and Portuguese, I believe, for the real estate, and Sinhalese, which is a native culture for domestic. It's a very interesting blend. Um, Amazing.
1: So they had the solicitor system for the financial issues. That's correct. Issues. Okay. All right. So, well, it's amazing to me that you found $5 million sitting in the bank.
2: For, for well, wasn't it wasn't just sitting. It had, it had jumped it a number of times. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, being in a very small country, I was able to get an introduction to somebody highly placed at the central bank who was able to assist me in telling me where the money was.
1: Now, Nick, didn't you have to be very careful about who you talked to and who you were disclosing this information to?
2: Well, absolutely. Um, That's one of the reasons that I used the uh, uh, connection that I had that lived in Sri Lanka. It's a small country that everybody knows everybody. Um, So, yes.
1: And so, how would you know that...
2: I used his advice and guidance continually.
1: And how would you know you could trust him?
2: Oh, because I know the people that knew him.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: And I've known them for all my life.
1: All right. Great. Okay. So, and you didn't have any trouble communicating in Sri Lanka? They speak English. Okay.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, Sinhalese is the native tongue. Uh, Of course, it's Tamil in the northern provinces. And, uh, no, English is very common. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so how did you, so you? The problem. I, the problem in that case was the, the criminals were Muslim, and the Muslim right. community in Colombo is very, very in a kind of an enclave. It's difficult to go into it, and the gentleman who had orchestrated the crime, his business was located in this enclave. So, um, ultimately, the criminal investigation division in Colombo was convinced to do a search warrant raid on his offices, and we found um, rubber stamps with the signatures of the principal in Venezuela. <laughs> so it was wow. Nice, nice, nice evidence find, yeah.
1: Very nice evidence. What a find. And are the search warrants done the same as they are in the
2: United States? You know, I don't know. Because uh, I, w- uh, I was with the CID officers when they went into court, but I, I did not go into the uh, they took a lot of paperwork with them, but I wasn't in front of the judge, so I don't know.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fascinating. So you ended up collecting how much of the seven million?
2: Well, of the seven, when, when it was all said and done, we we recovered about four million. They had taken some money out of the um, the bank, but we were able to get a judgment against this wealthy guy. I mean, he, he owns property and things. So at some point, if our client ever wants to pursue it, like they probably won't, um, they could go after him for, you know, deficiency on judgment or something like that. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And so once you find the assets, what happens then? Then it goes back to the company and their attorneys or solicitors handle it from that point? How does that work?
2: You mean in this particular case?
1: Yeah, in this particular case.
2: Well, in this case, I we... Um, the solicitors were operating at my direction. Um, it, I mean, I knew what I wanted done. I just told them to do it. And, it, and then once, once we had the money secured and it was not going to go anywhere, um, then it was just a process of them kind of wearing down the other side. And that's what took so long.
1: Yeah. You know, it's amazing to me that a company uh, would give you authority to operate on their behalf like you did.
2: Um, they were probably because of the recommendation of this law firm, who placed great confidence in my friend, um, who's, a, who's a stellar uh, investigator for the Federal Defender's Office. He's, mm-hmm. he's and he's just a, a solid box. So I think they knew they could trust. They could trust the lawyer, and the lawyer trusted him, and he trusted me. So.
1: And they never nobody from the company or no attorney, ever went to Sri Lanka with you or. Any well, of these ultimately,
2: trips? ultimately, in 2006, we began the hearings to conclude and move towards final judgment. The, the money ultimately ended up in Ceylon Bank. And Ceylon Bank was refusing to release it. Um, they were Sri Lanka at that time was in a real cash crunch, So hanging on to dollars was a real good idea. Um, so they held on to it for could. Mm-hmm. Um So, yeah, ultimately, we did have to bring over um, uh, the, uh, the CFO, who did speak English, a uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful man, and the president, who did not speak uh, English, but spoke baseball. Um, <laughs>
3: okay. <laughs> That's great. I
2: but, love right, it. But also loved cricket. Cause it, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> okay, so so um, they were very concerned because this... The fellow that had perpetrated this fraud had done a prior fraud uh, in which the complaining witness was kidnapped outside the courtroom and taken out twenty or thirty miles outside of town and beaten very severely. He wasn't killed, but he was roughed up pretty badly. So our clients were very concerned. So we provided executive protection for him. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: What well, that's a probably would be considered a case of a lifetime. I can't imagine. It was.
2: You know, I, that's what I said. It's the most exotic, most, gosh, it, it rings all my bells. I mean, we actually had to go. Um, the president of the insurance company found out that, the, that the, in the Maldives there's a, a Muslim population who mm-hmm. so wanted us to go there to make sure there wasn't anything going on bad. So we had to spend two weeks um, checking out the various island resorts.
1: And did you get any pushback from the Muslim community surrounding this guy? I mean, sounds like a pretty yeah. powerful guy. I would think they would protect him.
2: We only, only in the immediate area around where his business was in Sri Lanka. <clears throat> of course, in the Maldives, they didn't even know, know who he was. So, okay. Um, it, yeah, in Sri Lanka, not so much. He was, a, he was more, he was a, um, he was a manipulated thief. He was not generally violent. I was actually surprised when I heard the story about the kidnapped, complaining witness. Um.
3: Hmm.
1: Okay. All right. Well, you know that fascinating case. Now, I know you've done done some others. Um, but switching gears a little bit, yeah. you also do environmental kinds of uh, research with uh, judgments on people that have uh, defendants that have lost on an environmental. Tort.
2: No, the, the environmental cases we do are of two kinds. We do um, the what's called the potentially responsible party side, where we look for you know everybody that ever contributed to the content, the uh, waste stream
3: because
2: mm-hmm. um, they potentially have liability. And so that's a lot of interviewing and finding people. And the other part we do is toxic tort, which is defense of the personal injury claim. Okay. So, you, you don't, you're not collecting
1: the results of those trials? No. Those judgments? No. Okay. Okay. You know, um, we're almost at another break. Um, so, what do you enjoy more? Which kind of work do you enjoy more? Is it the judgment collection, because that's a, a big high when you get it, or is it the other kinds of cases?
2: It's whatever puzzle is most interesting. Um, it's really just about you know the, how, how can you solve it. It's putting the pieces together. My partner, Joanne Parent, who, who does a lot of environmental uh, site histories, which are really complex I and mean, it involves extensive archival research, uh, you know library research, I mean, private library research, witnesses lo- locates. She loves that part. That's Mm -hmm. a little tedious for me. Um, Right. Very detailed. I I, kind of enjoy a little more the the jazz from, like, finding the money. Yeah, for sure. Okay,
1: Uh, Nick, we need to take another break. Folks will be right back with... The topic of the day is locating banks and other assets with private investigator Nick Smith. And Nick had a recent situation, um, I believe just about a month or so ago, wasn't it, Nick, where you testified as an expert witness in a case in San Diego Superior Court. In, it was in
2: November, November two thousand.
1: In November, okay. Yeah. All right. And so what happened with that case?
2: No, that was a really interesting case because um, the... It's kind of a convoluted one. Um, the original plaintiff in the case was a man named Rukema. He was a dentist who lived in San Diego, and he and his wife bought a boat. When I say a boat, I mean a 75 foot motorcraft from okay. a man named Charles Frederick Rebozo in Miami, Florida. Charles Rebozo was the nephew of Bibi Rebozo. The bag man for Richard Nixon, right? Very active individual in the uh, Cuban American community who collected lots of political contributions and was a very um, astute businessman. So somehow the transaction didn't go right. Ruka ended up suing Rebozo and got a judgment for five million or five hundred thousand dollars. He didn't know what to do with it, and in the interim time period, his wife died. So he contracted with a judgment enforcement specialist to collect on his judgment. Okay. The judgment enforcement specialist, um, who lived in California at the time, now lives in New York, um, didn't appear to know quite what to do with it in Florida. Florida is a very challenging state, I will say that for collection, because they have different rules about property, property that can be taken, property that can't. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, he ultimately ended up settling the $500,000 judgment for about $200,000. Okay. Uh, In his deposition, he admits that he was under some financial pressure personally, but he contended that... Charles Arboza didn't have any money to satisfy the judgment. Well, so that was... Um, so he settled the case. Rukema, the dentist, became angry that it had been settled without his knowledge, and so he sued the judgment enforcement specialist. That was the, hmm. the underlying.
1: So he sued the judgment enforcement because guy because he gave... Inaccurate or fraudulent information? Well, the,
2: the, the, there what were a couple that? of uh, causes of action. One of them was um, the fiduciary nature of collections. Um, the, the defendant in the case, the, the judgment enforcement specialist, contended that because the judgment was his, he, the judgment was given to him improper so that he could um, prosecute it as if he were the judgment creditor. It's just a a very efficient way of doing things. Okay. Um, And it's frequently done in these kind of collection efforts. He contended that because his name was on the judgment, he could do whatever he wanted. Okay. Well, that's not common practice. It's still a business relationship, and in fact, standing in the place of the original judgment creditor, that is just... uh, That's a... uh, something that's done just to facilitate the collection. It's not like really that person has taken the judgment and everybody knows it. Okay. So um, that was the issue. And I was hired by the lawyer for the the dentist uh, before we went to trial. He said, I want you to find out as much as you can about Mr. Rebozo. So uh, Joanne and I looked par and wide. We found lots of information, and I, I formed an opinion that um, the, the entire judgment could have been satisfied. It might have been mm-hmm. a little more time-consuming. Uh, Rebozo actually even on property in California. It, just, it was a, not, a, in my opinion, a good investigation, and it was not a good execution on the judgment.
1: So it wasn't thorough to begin with. Correct. Right. And then the follow-through wasn't done correctly.
2: Yeah, and, and the inter the intervening act was that he had his own financial issues. The judgment enforcement specialist, and mm-hmm. so he settled hurriedly. He, he admitted that that really wasn't in contention, and, and that was one of the issues the judge ruled against him. He said, "You know, this type of activity is of a fiduciary nature."
1: Did and he get? Have, uh, did he get a percentage of the the collection? Oh, yeah, he got half. He got half, okay. So he got
2: $100,000. Right, and he, at the time, was in the process of losing his house. Okay. That's also on the record. Right. So um, he was in a tough spot. And and unfortunately, the, the dentist was in a difficult spot, too. There was a lot of emotional because of the death of his wife. It was a very sad case.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, because of so, they brought you in as an expert witness to talk about the due diligence is required for judgment collection. Is that what basically what it was?
2: Correct. Um, One of the issues was when was the property that Rebozo and his wife when did they acquire it? What kind of value did it have? He owned a total of five parcels of property, so there was a considerable amount of real estate, but. Uh, Florida has this strange little law called uh, in, the, in the Entireties, mm-hmm. uh, in the title of the deed, and it's kind of a revved-up uh, joint tenancy. <laughs> Very hard to break. Uh, okay. So um, that was his contention, but there are lots of uh, requirements that have to be met for that In-its-Entireties provision to apply, and they weren't met, and he didn't investigate that, so I pointed that out. So all of, some of that property could have been used, could have been sold, and the entire judgment.
1: And that's really the downside in in working on a case where you're getting part of the settlement is you're 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 clouded. You you're, you have a conflict.
2: Of course you do. <laughs> uh, the, yeah. But the, you know the theory is, and I understand it. You know, if somebody has has a judgment, they they've not been able to do anything with. Um. It's almost like anything's better than nothing. Right. The problem in, in this particular case was that um, because um, the dentist had an enormous emotional issue, um, he wouldn't settle. He wouldn't negotiate. It was it was really tough. I mean, it was, I had a long talk with him. It was just very hard. Hmm.
3: Yeah,
2: you're right. When you're working on something that you're getting a piece of. Um,
1: yeah, there's a conflict. Absolutely. I mean, I, I just, I can't even imagine. I, because no matter how you how you look at, first of all, there's an appearance of conflict just out of the gate. But Correct. secondly, how can you be objective if you're, if in this case, this guy's looking at getting
2: $100,000
1: and he's in financial stress himself. Wow. Right.
2: Kind of, so I don't know that I would have the discipline if I was in a situation to say, no, we'll pass right now. We'll yeah. come, back, <laughs> yeah. come back in six months. You know? Yeah. Let so, me take know, the in, in the real world. I'm just trying to look at you know,
1: Right. In the, in the real world, absolutely. Let me yeah. take the chance of not getting the
2: $100,000 I'm planning on to save my house. <laughs> exactly. And, and um, he had spent, uh, actually, he had spent quite a bit of money at that point trying to, to push this thing forward you know, in, in his defense. So it wasn't mm-hmm. as if he did nothing. He, he did, in fact, spend money on this case. Um, but I, it, I just think it was a combination of events for him. Yeah. So what was the end result? The end result was a judgment against him for $135,000, which was the judge's best computation of the value of the unreturned value of the, the original boat that didn't go through. It was a very complicated computation. Mm-hmm. I got lost in the numbers. But
1: right. Okay. All right,
2: fascinating. Um, I just and lots well, of fun. Lots of fun. You know, it, 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 I, I the part that I like is, is the the personality part of it, the psychology of it. it, it really yeah. Gets, it's, after a while, you know, people who are big time cons, they're pretty easy to spot. Just for their psychology. So, um, yeah. Is is there a profile? Oh yeah, there is actually. Um, on our website. Um, we have an article called The Psychopath at Home, Work, and Play, and that's www.psinvestigates.com.
1: Okay, that's, uh, your,
2: that's your website for... Right. Uh, and it's an article that, that uses uh, the work of Robert Hare, who's uh, probably the foremost uh, expert on psychopathy. Um, yeah, there's, there's certain traits, and those traits, I say, show up in public records, and behaviors and all kinds. How so? How so in public records? Well, you, for example, if you see somebody that has excessive multiple citations for speeding, that shows just a couple of things. One, he's a risk taker, he or she. Secondly, disregard for other other lives. Um, that, I mean, just that's just a little tickler. If, okay. in addition to that, you see multiple judgments, that's a person who doesn't. Take care of things as they're current. I mean, it begins to build. If you look at the, scale, the hair scale, um, there are number of attributes, and I, I think you'll see you can see how they line up with certain kinds of behaviors.
3: Hmm.
1: So, so when you're doing a case, you keep a you keep a uh, score sheet on. Uh, <laughs> you start checking them off on. on I know we were on when we were offline, we were talking about the conversation I had with Joe Dickerson regarding ba- the badges. Could you explain that a little bit?
2: Yeah, badges are the indicators of fraud. And it was interesting because I listened to Joe's podcast as well, and as he was going down the list, we have a case in San Mateo County involving um, fairly, uh, well, we're not certain what the financial status of this developer slash commodities broker is, but... uh, He's an older man and married a younger woman, about 20 years younger. Um, There was domestic abuse involved. He transferred a number of properties. They're divorcing. Um, Her attorney thinks that money's been hidden and property's been transferred fraudulently. And in fact, a number of properties, the LLCs that own them, uh, his niece, has, very young niece, has been substituted as the managing member. Oh, really? Yeah. For no consideration, just transfer it. Um, uh-huh. And that's, if you think that on um, Joe's uh, list of fraudulent, or uh, the badges, number one is lack of consideration for conveyance.
1: Okay. Interesting. So so right off the top, you can pretty much... Did I lose you?
2: No, I'm here. There I you know. go.
1: Okay. Uh, right off the top, you you c- kind of psychologically evalu- evaluate this person as you're starting through your your process of checking them out when when you're doing the background. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, it's interesting if you look at enough data over time, you'll start to see that certain kind of patterns evolve. Not like not like uh, predictably for every person, but frequently. Yeah from the data if you see if I see a person who's 40 years old and they've had and they're not in the military uh, and they're not long haul truck drivers and they've had 37 residences there's something wrong mm-hmm. so I, I'd be I'd want to know why that I, that would be a red flag for me I'd want to look at that
1: that would be a red flag
2: for sure yeah I wouldn't know what it meant right then but it's so out of the ordinary mm-hmm. and it might be a clue um about assets, or it might be a clue about who knows what. But yeah, that's something I would look at.
1: That's that's really uh, that's really interesting, Nick. Because I, of course, this is way over my pay grade as far as I'm concerned <laughs> for investigation. <laughs> that would have not been something I would have thought of. So uh, that's a really interesting uh, look lens to look at it. Yeah. All these cases through, and right. I and I suspect, particularly when you have these these uh, large judgments, and we know, like off the top, people are going to hide assets. They do. They do it all the time. They do it in divorces, even even if there's not much to speak of. They still hide the assets. Correct.
2: You know, they're going to keep that Tupperware set <laughs> elder high no water, no matter what. That's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they're going to they're gonna work under the table. They're going to do all kinds
2: of things. that, uh, uh, right. yeah. You know, really the, 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 the really uh, committed um, fraudster, uh, the, there are endless ways to hide money. I mean, literally. You know, you can prepay whole life insurance policies. Uh, a friend of mine the other day pointed out, it's one I hadn't thought about in a long time, um, when we're looking at databases, and we're looking about who we're, what we're going to investigate, if we see corporations that are now, about, they've expired the franchise tax but not been paid, we yeah. frequently don't investigate those. Yeah. The problem a... with that is those corporations, if they were issued a tax ID number and opened up a bank account, may still have the bank account. Yeah, probably the, so. The bank doesn't close them down because they didn't pay their franchise tax. So it's Very a perfect way to, yeah. to screen yourself as you've got this expired corporation and you still have money in it. Oh.
1: You know what, Nick? We're out of time. Oh, no. <laughs> we are. We're out of time. But this has been so fascinating. I really appreciate you uh, sharing the microphone with me today. I, it's a, so much it's information. been a delight for me. So uh, to the rest of you, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Nick Smith. And Nick, give your website once again.
2: Yes, it's www.psinvestigates.com. We cover northern and southern California, 800-516-2448.
1: Okay, and that's Nicholas J. Smith. Thank you so much. It's PIS Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening.